Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Eurasian Americans. If it's your first time joining us, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you're coming back, welcome back. It's always, always great to have you here as we share our unique and amazing Asian American stories with you all. Uh, today, I have an amazing guest who's a great friend, Peter Lee, founder of Coba Coffee, who'll share with you a story of how he thought he had life figured out and through a twist of fate, went on a different path and ultimately ended up finding love for coffee. And due to his relentless uh, work ethic and his ingenuity, is now an entrepreneur creating the future of coffee uh, through his business, Coba Coffee, while still pursuing his corporate uh, career. So sit down, uh, grab a cup of coffee, and uh, or I guess a bar of coffee. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Peter. Uh, please do visit his website. It's Coba, C-O-B-A dot coffee and order yourself a Coba coffee bar. Um, if you are tuning into our show, you can use the code podcast to get yourself 15% off your order and also help his business grow and uh, consider getting one for a friend or two as you start shopping for the holidays. Thanks again for tuning in, whether it is your first or your 84th time. I'm so grateful that you are here. Thanks so much. And here now is my conversation with Peter Lee. Hey, everybody, welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Uh, wherever you are, whenever you are listening to us, we wish you happiness and health and safety uh, here in California, where both uh, my guest and I are today, right in the middle of September. We are dealing with COVID. We are dealing with idiots and we are dealing with wildfires. So uh, stay inside, stay cool, stay safe. And if you don't think COVID is a good enough reason to wear a mask, well, half the state is burning, so you should probably wear a mask anyway. Um, you know, 2020 has been a really, really, you know, crazy year. Uh, fantastic year, I guess, from a insanity perspective. Um, it's really changed the way that we view the world. It's really changed the way we work. It's changed the way we go to school. And we often talk about going back to normal, but I don't think we ever actually will go back to normal. I think in life, we deal with and we persevere through what life throws at, at us from a challenge perspective. And we make the best of it. We learn from it and we pivot. And the goal isn't to go back to normal. The goal, back, the goal is to really, how do we build on what we just went through together and come out of it on a different way? And that different hopefully is better, but it is certainly going to be different. And so my guest today, uh, Peter Hyung-Suk Lee, is somebody who is now a successful entrepreneur and has his his corporate path and right now if you look at him in a snapshot you might be led to believe wow he's got a lot of stuff going well for him but just like we're going through in 2020 uh, we're going to learn a little bit about peter's past and his story that will hopefully give you a little bit of hope and inspiration uh, wherever you are in life and how hopeful or not you may be about your own or society's future um, we're going to talk to peter and learn a little bit about his own life and, and what we can learn from it so um, and before we, we meet Peter, uh, big shout out to Peter and the rest of his team at Coba Coffee. Uh, they are our first sponsors of the show. Um, we love it. I love it. Um, it's, you get to eat coffee, which is actually sort of exciting and much tastier at times. And, uh, you shouldn't be going out to coffee shops anyway. And so, uh, want to thank the team there at Coba Coffee for that. And so, uh, without further ado, Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, Jerry. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the I, nice plug-in. Always, always be, 
always be marketing, always be plugging. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if we're going to air the video of this uh, conversation, but uh, Peter's Zoom background is three giant sized Copa packs, which is yeah. kind of cool. Size um, of my head. <laughs> maybe you should do uh, one of these days, we'll do like a giant charity auction with like life sized Copa. You know, they like you go to those candy factories and they have like one really big one that's like just for just for show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably I've made one and probably eaten the whole thing myself at one point. I can I can probably say I've eaten more Cobas <laughs> than anyone in this world. So, um, yeah, life size, like totally doable. We had made most of these. All, like now we're like oh, scaling really? out to some. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we would be we would get a commercial rented kitchen. We all the team goes in. We spend you know eighteen hours in the kitchen. We come out. You know we see the sun and we we, we go in see when the sun's up. We come down. We come out when the sun's down. Um, it's it's a it's a true hustle being in, in in the food space, especially when you're on the manufacturing side. Wow! All right, we're gonna learn all about that. How you got the inspiration to start Koba Coffee and and all the lessons that you continue to learn along the way, but. Let's roll back the clock a little bit and learn about the Lee family and, and how the uh, the family moved to America. You know, when did you guys immigrate here? Under what circumstances? Where did you land? And tell us a little bit about uh, Peter in his early, early years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the story starts with my father being kind of a, he, he, he was a travel agent uh, in Korea back when that was an actual thing. And um, he... He would. He studied abroad in Australia for a little while, uh, for about a year, and we, my, me and my mom were, were with my sister. I have a younger sister who wasn't born yet, um, and then I think he really thought that maybe if we come to the states, we'd have an opportunity to learn English. Um, and this was supposed to be a temporary thing, really. It was supposed to be like a couple of years, learn English for like just the basics and go back to Korea. But um, my my parents had actually established a somewhat of a like a decent income generating business here, and it was a toy store. And uh, from that point, I think um, it just made more sense to stay here. I think really what really like sealed the deal was like um, this emphasis on academics. And like, I was able to actually perform with like other students and do do decently in elementary school, I guess. And um, I think because that because of that, um, my parents just felt like, hey, we have a good thing going here. Let's keep it going and like, let's see what happens. So I was three years old then. My sister was about six months. Um, and then that's uh, I, I, I remember vividly we we're on the plane coming here. My dad said, I, 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 thought, I thought I was four years old, but in Korea, you actually start with your first year, right? You start mm. at year one. And so he told me, he put one my, my pinky finger down and said, you're actually three here in the U.S. So I was like, oh, I lost an age, you know, like two kids that <laughs> matter, right? Um, so I remember like, I remember the flight here. I remember like saying bye to one of my friends um, in Korea and we came here and uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, started in Koreatown and uh and um, was here for a couple of years, went to Wilton Place uh, Elementary School for till, till first grade. And then we moved over to um, to like the Montebello area, went to school there for a little while and then settled in uh, La Crescenta for basically until high school. What was that like? La Crescenta today is a, not only just a generally diverse community, there's a ton of Koreans up there now. Yeah. Um, what were your friend groups like? And, you know, tell us a little bit about the friends that you grew up with? Ooh, so friends, I, I didn't, I don't know if I had too many friends in uh, elementary and middle school. I think I wasn't, I, I was definitely not cool. That's for sure. Um, I remember like, uh, I, I think I remember like running to the library to like finish some kind of like 
you know, I was that kid that would run to the library during snack and then um, go online and then do like the math quizzes. And then like, you know, we, we got to the point where we, we, when you finish the whole math series, which is like 20 different episodes, uh, at the end of the year, the principal will take you out to lunch. And uh, I, I got it. I got that. I was one of two kids that got that. And we uh, went to hometown buffet. So like, that was like, that was me. And like, um, and like, that was <laughs> having lunch with the principal and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, like in terms of friend groups, like, I, I, I mean, like I, I wasn't, I was like a straight, straight A kid. Like for some reason, when I got to Alakar Center, they placed me in e, uh, ESL, but um, I was doing like the gate work. I was trying to, I was trying to do all the gate work and um, I, I Asked my teacher every day when like did I get a four? We were out. It goes one, two, three, four. Four being the highest. I'd be like, can I? Did I get a four? Did I get a four? And he'd say yes. Like I got a four. And kind of like if I didn't get a four, he would hear it from me. So he would always give me like a four. I think in hindsight. <laughs> what were your aspirations as a kid? Um, you were academically gifted. You tried hard. You know, you you saw the hard work that your parents were putting in. You know, running a business and running a store. What were some of your early influences and and what did you want to grow up to be? Yeah, good question. It changed a lot. You know, it really changed different depending on the people I wanted to impress. <laughs> I was probably at some point when I was at church, I'd say I wanted to be a priest, not knowing that the terminology was for, you know, Catholicism, not, not, um, you know, and so I, changed, I, I told everyone I wanted to be a priest. And then like my parents could, could brag about that. And then I said, I wanted to be a lawyer or a judge at some point. I said judge first. And then I, I realized, you know, like I have no idea, like, Somebody told me, oh, you have to be a lawyer before you be a judge. I said, like, okay, then I want to be a lawyer. And then, like, it really, like, you know, the, I, the who I wanted to be really just, it was to, it was depending on who, like, who was listening, really. Um, at some point to my friends, I said Jedi because I thought that was something that we, that was real. And my friends thought were real, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking, like, eight years old, ten years old, right? So, like, you know, whatever works. And I think just... Um, I think progressively, you know, at some point I got really into like seeing, uh, I think when I, there, there was like a, this, this insane documentary about uh, child trafficking and it was just circulating with, uh, in, in, in uh, like, at least in like the youth group, the churchy spaces. And we were watching this and uh, I think it was called Nefarious. And it really kind of struck a chord and I, and I converted this whole like, being want to be a lawyer to uh, being like kind of a human rights activist, uh, international lawyer type. And, um, it, you know, there's like, how much, how, how much can like a, like an elementary middle school kid do about this issue? So, you know, it really, like, I try to do as much as I can with what I had now. And it, it come like, you know, that really, that journey propelled me into some, like, some kind of, in, like starting to be like entrepreneurial, even like in, in more of the social space in high school, we started a, started a club that, you know, eventually spanned up into four or five schools, five schools. And, uh, it was called look and just very simply L O O K. Uh, we, we would, um, the idea was having like change starts when you look, um, and mm. the, like it, the path was trying to get as many high school kids so that are my friends and my colleagues to, to go down to Skid Row and interact with homeless people and it really realize like they're, they're people and they're like, and humanize the situation. And that like, when you know their names, you know, eat, eat a meal with them and, and like get to know their story. Like it, it's, it's a pretty big impression, I think on everybody. I don't think anyone that said this was a bad experience, like anyone that, I, that I, I've at least walked on there with, gone there as in like gone to Skid Row in Los Angeles on like 6th and Gladys. Um, and that's where we would meet with um, like people. And I, I, I made and, and, and um, I have I still talk to like a couple like I have a I have a black mom. Her name is Helena. 
we we talk like once once a while we went to the dodgers game together once because she's never been though she's been a dodger fan for like 40 years and like we you know we still have like you know we still talk once a year at least um during thanksgiving and christmas season times and i got you know it's coming up so i gotta i gotta call her in and see how she's doing now but um um yeah yeah i think it really um that whole interacting with um people who are who are not from your background and who are not like you and and who are in totally different social economic and just like every different circumstance has probably been the biggest impression uh, for me that's given me like the initiative and drive to do what i do not that i do I much i think you're doing enough you're doing <laughs> but, more than most um i i make coffee well tell me tell me more about <laughs> yeah. that though Peter. like yeah you know help us really understand like kids from the suburbs I'm going to stereotype. And so if you think I'm stereotyping, sorry. Yeah. Privileged Korean kids from the LA suburbs don't do that. Uh, We, not that we're bad. Many of our parents, unfortunately, in my opinion, put us on a path of study hard, focus on yourself and some of these social stuff, some of the social concerns or, or, you know, ills of, uh, society are not your problem, right? Just study hard, get your grades. But like, what sparked that interest in you to do something that bold? Was it ignorance is bliss? Was it guidance from your parents? Was it to say something you did magical on your college application? Like, what what drove that to for for you to do that? Because you know, we see a lot of young folks doing crazy stuff now. And again, I might be falsely stereotyping my own generation, but, you know, that's not stuff that I think a lot of us did back then. Yeah. Um, so it's weird because like when you're at that age, like the whole idea of privilege, you don't know, right? I had no idea I was privileged. Um, it, <laughs> until you really like get out there and like, I think like you start thinking for yourself, you, you like, I don't know, like, so like, so I, okay, a couple things, right? So the study hard and focus on your studies and focus on yourself part with my parents is easily washable when you say, Hey, this is good for my college apps. So like they they just stop bothering at that point. Extracurriculars are important for your college apps. So, okay. Like, okay. They're, they're, they're satisfied. Um, and the whole, like, um, just going out there, it was just, I think like there was this like, oh man, it was like a weird channel of a lot of like not doing enough in my life like it's you know you can really convert you can change a lot of like your your um you, you can change a lot of the motivation you have to do certain things you can di- you, you pretty much you can, i can direct my anxiety to the cause that i wanted to that, like solve if i if my anxiety said if I, I generally let's just say i have a bottle of energy called anxiety and i could say i'm gonna put all of this to solving a ten thousand piece puzzle which which is fine and everyone should do if you want you know like great therapy or like just a quiet time, but you can also say, "Hey, I'm I'm going to put this ball of energy towards like uh, taking as many kids to Skid Row as possible." And it, it's really a lot more simplistic than like the complex social issues that were like probably revolving around me at that time. It was just to say, "How much can? How many students can we get from point A to point B, and uh, and have them experience what I experience, and maybe this will aggregate into something?" But that whole like maybe part wasn't even finished. It actually somewhat like kind of summed up when in my junior to senior year summer, you know, we I, we were like I was thinking giving food out and talking with people is it's not enough. Like, can what else can you do? And and like, what can high school kids really do for homeless like homeless adults who you know have so many more like 
more like, I mean, what, like, what can I do? You know, and like, okay, look, very fundamentally, we can, we know that a handful of people are looking for jobs and they are actually like trying to do that. Can we get them bus passes um, to at least get them to point A to point B? You know, can we get them suits and ties? Can we do, you know, we're asking all these questions, but you know, one of the things I found out was one of, one guy named Pee Wee is um, he would go to the Ralph's store in Riverside from downtown LA twice a week so that he could um, stock their like back, back room. And it's because of his, uh, his uh, residency issue, right? He's, he wasn't, he wasn't, um, he wasn't a citizen. He was, uh, he was, a uh, you know, he, he had the cheapest housing in downtown LA and he was, uh, going down to Ralph's in Riverside, and he would basically take the bus there, but he would walk the remaining miles just to, because give the, the audience context of the distance go. there for so people like, okay. not familiar with SoCal geography. Oh yeah, yeah. So downtown LA Skid Row, you know, mid that's like downtown mid mid financial center of Skid Row, like like that area. It's about a hundred miles, right? So you're busing a hundred miles in LA, like transportation, public transportation, which is notorious for not being good, like which is just notorious. It's not good. There's a lot of transfers. It's inefficient. And like most people don't take this. Um, but, you know, th- here's this guy doing this. Um, and he, I was like, okay, what can we do for you? He said, I just need a bicycle. I'm like, oh my goodness, here it is. We can collect bicycles. We can get locker center bicycles mm. and bring it down to LA. And we then like did this huge survey. We reached out to nonprofits in the area. said, hey, like give us the people who need bikes in your family. Because we can't go out and like figure this out. Like who are we going to, how are we going to judge who needs what? So I think that was one of the best things we did was we started interacting with mm. like SRO Housing Corporation, right? They were a nonprofit in LA. We worked with a couple of local churches in LA that in, in that were in Skid Row, not like some like you know distant church that knew somebody. In, you know, this was like actual people, like people doing doing work in the area. Then we got a list of people and we brought them all to this parking lot that we borrowed from SRO Housing because they were generous and and we we gave out the bicycles to um, to these people looking for jobs. Um, that was like in, you know, in high school and, you know, like, I think, you know, I, I, I read your, I watched your, um, interview with, uh, Benny and, uh, you know, that validation comes in when you're on the <laughs> local news or like in the, in your native language news, boy, we were there. Like we were like, we were on a bunch of newspapers and a bunch on, of, like, only, so. yeah, only guess, when like, you're in the were... Korea times or the central daily. Um, yeah, I think Korean parents value that more than, uh, the LA times even, uh, <laughs> Because it's real for them yeah, and their community, right? Yeah, um, that is their source there. of news. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bragging rights. Cool, man. Uh, that is awesome. Um, and then, so for young folks out there, man, um, if it feels right, if it's safe to do so, um, do do something and try. I know it's hard, but try to minimize what you think your parents will think about it. Try to minimize what your friends will think about it. I certainly don't want to pretend to know what the average high school student goes through today. Um, certainly a very different world that you and I grew up in even. But yeah, it, it's never a bad day to try to help somebody who, uh, for for whom your hello, your generosity, your reaching out actually might save their life or, or change their life, especially now and, and as challenging as the year 2020 um, has been. So you are on your way to academic success. You're doing community work. Yeah. And then your life took a bit of a left turn. Yeah. Uh, share with us how that happened and were there certain things that happened in your life or changes in the way you view the world that helped you or not, yeah. not help, but uh, that caused you to make those choices? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, you know, to kind of set up the context, right. So I'm here, I am like, 
debate captain, model UN president, and founder of this massive club that have like that is 200 students with like almost you know 4.4 GPA in, and like great SAT scores, right? So I'm like set up, and I'm telling everybody, my goal is Harvard. My goal is Princeton. My goal is Yale. Like that, like that's kind of like the scale I'm like thinking. And like, I'm like, I'm like, and now like, you know, this, this, all this prestige has gotten my, gotten to my head and I'm telling everybody that I'm going to do this and that. And like, I'm going to go out and be a lawyer after this. I go to Harvard law and then do all this. I know granted you got to think I'm like 16, 17 years old. So that's the context. Right. And I, and here I am like ready to go. And, um, I didn't realize that my citizenship status put me in a pool. So I was, I was on a, what is called the E2 visa, which is like a treaty investor visa, but put me in the pool of international students. And at the same time, what had happened was um, my, my parents had one toy store in, you know, like Huntington Park uh, area, which is kind of like a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. And we had a store there and, and there was this bad wiring that, you know, I, I don't know who did, but basically there was bad wiring that caught the store on fire. And my parents didn't have any insurance, like just like most, you know, Asian Americans, uh, small business owners, first gen don't have like, don't know these kind of things. And they, they realized that we didn't have insurance. That was, so we basically lost our source of income wow. overnight, um, like right before the Christmas season. And, and um, so, you know, technically speaking, our n- income for that year, I was applying to college was negative, like, you know, maybe $200,000, right? <laughs> Um, and colleges were asking, Hey, you're an international student. You can't get financial aid. You can't get loans here. How are you going to, how are you going to pay? So even the colleges that gave you a free application would actually rejected me because they wanted to see the proof of like, how can I pay for school? So I was rejected to every school I applied to. Again, this is like post like interview with Harvard, Princeton and post all these interviews and like the momentum's there. And then all of a sudden this happened and there was so much shame. I mean, granted, a lot of it came because I had a big mouth and I would just talk too much, talk too highly of myself. I still have a big mouth, but um, but basically it really like um, I couldn't walk around school. Like it was like it was it was tough. And like and I to be honest, I, I think it was probably like the best medicine I had in hindsight. I, I mean, we can talk about the up, uphill after that, but in a, in a, in a sec, but, you know, I was the, like the editor in chief, right, of our newspaper, school newspaper, and I had to teach a class, and I had to teach the whole fifth period class, and like go up there and like to, tell people how to like you know write their articles and do their you know do their editing and things like that, and and all of a sudden like hey like oh he's gonna go to community college or he might not even go to college, you know like this is my second semester of senior year now, and like literally in April like or like I think this was like right after my birthday, 18th birthday, I'm like hey I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna leave college, I'm gonna leave high school. Um, I can't take this anymore. I can't even graduate with these people. Like I can't like, um, you know, people, I, it was, it was so competitive getting to where I, where I wanted to be. It was just so competitive and so toxic. And I put so many people down and now like I had what's coming to me at that point, I guess. And it was now like, Hey, like just, just run, run away and, and drop out and get your GED or something. And I ended up just going to, uh, um, I dropped out. Went to a school called Options for Youth. Got my diploma in like like, I mean it was a charter school and you know great charter school and we you know I got my diploma in like two weeks because we were able to finish the classes sooner and and basically I graduated two months before my senior graduation tech, my at my at my original high school like Crescent Valley, um, yeah so it was you know it's like, it's like I want to dig deeper into the shame because it's um it's in looking back now it's really what what got like what triggered 
like the entrepreneurial path and all of like, like more like a more of a businessy type of pro- for profit mindset because you know like we needed some redemption you know you wanted some redemption right you want when you do when you talk so talk a big game and you drop right and like you know now you you put your head down and then you like you have to find something else that gives you some kind of validation and it you know then I like then I just started thinking that I'm gonna go do um, run bunch of business i'm going to start the next starbucks i'm going to beat the next whatever so yeah i mean i think this is kind of what got me to be very hustle hustle mindset grind and like i was just at the cups cusp of these like you know these gurus who are starting to talk about like you know your nine to five is blah 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 and you know i was like really subscribing to that nonsense and like really like channeling all this anxiety let's talk about making money uh before we talk about the rise why why yeah, was it so binary that. for let's you that if you couldn't go to Harvard, that if you couldn't do that, that you just had to give up high school like two months before you could cross the finish line, right? Like why w- the way that you looked at life, like why was it oh. so black and white that you just, and I'm not trying to like be, be dad here and saying like, you should have finished, you were so close, but like you literally walked away <laughs> because you didn't want to deal yeah. with, not, it wasn't the absence of Ivy League or whatever you thought was the next path all of a sudden eliminated any sort of joy, hope, or fulfillment from the experience through which you were trying to get there, right? Was it the goal orientation? Was it the achievement mindset? Mm-hmm. Like what, what, tell me about what you were, and then I guess with the hindsight that you have now, like what, what made you walk away that, would you walk away again? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, so technically what had happened was um, after all the college rejection letters came in, I just stopped going to school. I just literally dropped, like, I had so many truancies in my record and all that. And, and my teachers were going to give me like D's and C's, right? So you went from like all A's to now C's and D's. And I didn't want my last semester of high school reflecting my transcript D's and C's. So what had happened is if I dropped out, I could save my good record and my GPA. So when I, when I transfer, when I transfer from community college, this was a little bit more strategic than, you know, me, my like emotional outbursts. Emotional outbursts were there, but it was um, trying to reserve all the good grades that I had in high school without showing that last semester to the college I transfer into. So I knew that when you transfer colleges, you still need to send your uh, high school transcript and still kind of Mm -hmm. divulge what your grades were. Um, And so what I wanted to do was um, not show them the the Fs and the C, the Ds that I would have gotten had I still graduated. Um, So kind of as just kind of like make things a little clearer. That's crazy. Um, after, after I found out that's br- crazy in a brilliant, <laughs> it's like e- evil genius of like, well, shit, if I'm going to walk away, might as well do it in a strategic way. Right. Because at that point your grades were what somewhat unsalvageable, I imagine. Yeah. yeah so better no to take way. zero than <laughs> yeah. a 50 or a blank. Really. It's not even a zero, right? It wouldn't even show up. Right. That's what I wanted to keep. Like you, you wouldn't be on my transcript. If you, if you pulled my transcript up now, you would see all of a sudden missing like all A's. I'm like, oh, he must have been a great student. And then you would never see the second semester. It was it was like all show showmanship, you know, like just trying to be like, you know, sh- like showy and show people like like I mean, show colleges at that point. Right. That I'm still this perfect kid. And blah, blah, blah. Um, but man, community college years like yeah, that, w- that was some of the best years like Curious, like it was all pure curiosity. I think pure exploring curious, uh, cur- curious avenues and trying, trying different what things. What were your parents' reaction if they had any, or 
how did you how did they find out that they didn't get to come to graduation well i the oh man so i walked my dad to school and then i had him sign me out of school that was that morning was terrible oh my gosh like i man my dad is a hero like he is just i mean like he he had to go talk to the principal and tell like explain to him that ex- explain to my principal that this is the decision we're going to make and I think for my dad, that was like, that was pretty tough. I mean, for like, you know, like, if you, if we rewind back, we talked about how like we came and stayed here because my academics were, mm-hmm. I was performing academically. Right. So like you, you, you put, you put two and two together, you'll see that, oh, he just, he just literally just wanted to, um, I, I, I literally like screwed up this last 18 years, I guess, of trying to be, you know, be academically good. Um, but you know, I, Going back to like my so like yeah so but on on that though when like we, so, we basically, a lot of folks who might be listening or in our community we, we have people still not on full resident visas they're on you know uh, work visas or investor visas or whatever right and I don't I want to be delicate here and not to place blame on your parents but were they not aware that you would were they not aware that your visa situation at that time would prevent you from that and did you have conversations with them about, okay, so the goal, if I kick ass in school, is to go to school. I would technically be a foreign student because you didn't have a green card in high school, right? Like, what was that conversation around? Like, wait a minute, like, were your parents planning to pay for school if the toy store incident didn't happen? Like, right? Because that also contributed to you not understanding what the opportunities were. Right. And to me, when I'm hearing your story, it's expectation management sort of took a fall there because I know of other people in your situation where I don't know why, but the parents shielded their kid from that reality. And when they had to find out, as you did, saying, holy crap, I actually can't go to that school because we they won't even give us loans to borrow. And so unless you had, you know two, three hundred thousand dollars of just cash sitting somewhere to write a check, like going to any private school or even a public school because they would have charged you international student rates anyway. Like that was not even a topic. Like how how was how did you process that? Yeah, so so for one, I thought I could compete against the international, you know, students on an on like a resume level, right? So I think that still, you know, I still took a step applying because I thought my application was still comp- like comparative. The second part was um, we never knew the fire would affect the finances. You know, I thought you know, like I, I didn't. I don't think I understood financial aid well enough and how that how that works until after after until the aftermath when they started asking me for our bank records. Um, this this was yeah. You're you're right. This is high, like very fundamental. This is you know money money is like you know colleges make a lot of money off of undergrad kids and and this is very fundamental that everyone needs to understand um you need to be able to pay for your school if you're if you're not a citizen if you're not if you're if you don't want if you're not on daca if you're not if you don't if you don't have a green card or your citizenship you have to be able to pay for your school um for your right. whole out-of-state tuition out-of-state or international tuition and before they admit you you're gonna have to prove it that i mean but even if you got in it still would have presented the obvious challenge of like, well, hell, how the hell do we pay for it? Right. So I think that's, 
you know, um, I guess that's my way. If, if you're, uh, a parent out there, um, and again, I, I don't want to stereotype an entire generation of our parents who sacrificed so much and kicked ass to, to raise us, yo, have your difficult conversations with your kids, man, especially if it's not probable that your situation is going to change. Um, we know too many stories of grown kids, you know, stepping away from family relationships or having those relationships go beyond repair because people decided that they didn't want to talk about certain things that are necessary. And so even by the time you were 18, 19, man, you, you, you were, you were going through a lot. And then, so you, you mentioned that community college was an amazing turnaround process for you, full of curiosity and just exploring stuff. What, what, what did you learn yeah. about yourself? How did your outlook on life change and how did your relationships with your parents change through that? Yeah. So the whole, my whole life has been about this goal setting and the highest achievement that would get the most recognition, right? We started from wanting to be a priest, going to Harvard to, you know, all of these things that, you know, eventually kind of like all shattered, right? In, in, in like literally a month or like two months. And you really get to start from zero. And after you kind of like swallow the pill of like, oh, like, and you're not really around the people who are shaming you so much, or you feel the shame from that, that they were actively doing that. You really get to kind of like think about what do I want now? And to answer that question was so like so much freedom to be able to like truly want to answer that question that, you know, what do you want now? Because your parents have like now, like, you know, like my, my mom and dad were not happy. Right. And I was just like kind of that in a Korean term, that checky in the room. So like, you know, I was like, uh, so I really got to like figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and, um, it one, one was like validated again, like that. Hey, like it wasn't like grades that made me feel good. Like what, what can I do to validate myself? And one was like, just, Hey, make a shit ton of money, go out and go make a ton of money and figure out like what, um, like just, like just go and be like, you know, and I, so, you know, like I thought, so I, what I, what actually happened like a step-by-step step was I applied for a job at Starbucks, couldn't get it because I was a not, not a citizen, not a, not able to work in the U S so really upset, but I knew I could start a business. Cause I knew like, this is just this, my visa allowed me to do, to have like a, my own little business. So I said, I'm going to open a cafe. So I went like door to door, looked at, like sat in like, you know, back in, you know, sat, sat at a Starbucks coffee bean for you know, a number of years, a number of hours, just counting how many cups people were buying. And it just never made, it, didn't, it actually financially didn't make sense. When she, once I started asking the questions of rent, um, rent wages, um, license fees, and, and just like lease terms, like I was calling leases, like as an 18, 17 year old calling like um, commercial real estate agents, asking them how much this lease is going to be. They said 10,000 for 10 years. I'm like, 10 years? Like, what the heck is that? Like, what is that number? You know, and, and you start asking these questions. I'm like, why is this cafe here? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And you start asking, how are they making the money? And they're like, oh, they serve food. That's how they make, like, they basically balance their budget. Like, it doesn't make any sense. So all of the, like, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, it doesn't make sense to open a cafe. You can only do it at scale and at volume. Like that, maybe that's why Starbucks is Starbucks because they're in every corner and all that point. Um, this is before like third wave. Just as, this is just like when third wave coffee was starting to kick up, kick in. Third wave for just some context is like the blue bottle, the stump town, the intelligentsia coffee shops that have just recently, just not recently, but in the last 10 years really emerged. Um, and this is, um, so I thought, 
how can I make this the most, like, how can I make the most efficient business model in stolen coffee, not as opening a cafe, but something else. So I, so I built a roaster. I couldn't, I couldn't afford making, you know, buying a $40,000, $50,000 roaster. You so built I built one? one by, by, I, I, yeah, I, I literally got a pot, put some trippers inside that'll like keep the, uh, keep the coffee churning. And then I put it on the side and put it over a propane tank. Um, and then I put a motor on the side so it would spin. And then it was great. I mean, it would, it would do five pounds uh, easy. And it was just like, it was amazing. Like, I, and I would sell this ca- coffee. And I called our, ironically, I called, called our Glendale uh, Unified School District superintendent. And I said, hey, I want to bring you coffee. I'm a, I'm a graduate, quote unquote. I didn't actually graduate, but I'm a graduate of CV High School. And, and he's like, oh, yeah, come over. And I brought him some coffee. I said, I want to supply coffee to your district. And he's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. So we had a was one-year contract easy, though, where Peter? I would supply coffee from this. Li- no, getting getting the cold yeah, call? You, you yeah, made it you know, sound it very cold. easy. Like you just you called up the super and you brought him some coffee. Like, what was the process for him to believe in an unknown entity at the time? <laughs> yeah, great question. I was uh, so cold email, right? Cold email uh, to all the principals plus you know the superintendent. The only one, like, all the principals in the in the school district. The only one that responded was mm. the superintendent, ironically, and he said, "All right, come over, bring the coffee." I came in a suit, sweaty in the summer, super hot with my little thermos and iced coffee in there, cold brew, right? From my coffee that I, I roasted. And then um, I poured him a cup and I thought he, th- I think he, I, well, he came, his family was from the restaurant space. So he kind of knew like, hey, this is, this is a journey. And he said, he, I think he just offered some kind of gesture of support. He said, okay, well, we have this monthly meeting. We'll start there and you can supply coffee there. And um, for pricing wise, you know, how much do you buy your beans for? I said, hundred bucks. I didn't, it wasn't a hundred, but I said a hundred bucks. Okay. We'll give you three times that. So 300 bucks for your labor and time. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, we'll start with that. And then it, it, you know, different meetings, different events. There's a lot of events going on and we just supply coffee to them. Um, you know, and that's kind of like, that was my, my first, like, you know, it was like a lemonade stand, right? You know, you, you roast your coffee and you sell them the coffee and you, you put it in your mom's like minivan and you tie it up so it doesn't spill. And, you know, you put seatbelts on it and you put like, <laughs> like a towel under the pot and then you take it to the school district. Um, that was pretty tough, you know, just to make like 200 bucks. Right. I mean, then back then for like, you know, just the recent grad high school, yeah. grad, it was a lot of money or high school dropout. It was a lot of money. How did that turn into you? Um, well, tell me about that part of your life and uh, eventually how, I guess the question is, so you gave up on academics at least from a traditional path, um, you went into entrepreneurship, you were seeing some success, um, but you decided to do both, right? You wanted to continue in your entrepreneurship path, but yeah. also um, tell us about your decision-making process to consider going back to uh, college um, at a very, very high level and a very prestigious school. Um, how, how was that journey? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'll start with the headline. I applied to UC Berkeley four times and got in on, on my fourth try. Um, and that's exactly what I wrote in my public uh, personal statement. So, you know, once in high school and twice in community college and once again at UC Santa Barbara, and then I got in my, from the UC Santa Barbara application. So, so yeah, it's, it, there, there, needs, there needs to be a little bit more context, a little bit more context. So, you know, community college was not that hard. Um, having taken like six AP classes in a year, you know, you don't get homework, you just get a couple essays a year and then you get a final, right? So 
in terms of workload, it was pretty manageable, and I was able to still do this, uh, you know, in conjunction with my uh, my uh, my coffee business and like a bunch of other side hustles. Um, so you know, I was getting pretty good grades, and then I think what it, what I realized was like I still kind of so I applied to UC Berkeley from community college. But I didn't have all the assist classes, which were like the major prep classes that you needed to take to get to get into the school. So the first time I got rejected, the second time I applied, I still didn't do it. But I, you know, this weird like I'm I'm kind of dumb that way. I got to like learn my lesson a couple times. You got to get all your major prep classes done before you apply. And I didn't do that. And I thought I'd still get in because I had a four zero, and then I would get in, and I didn't. So okay, so I went to so, but I did get into UC Santa Barbara because they might they didn't have calculus two as one of the requirements. So I got I went to UC Santa Barbara as a global studies major um, and loved it. I mean, it was one year. I was there one year and it was just this amazing experience. Met the the coolest, most down to earth people that I still can say to this day. I like they are like mm. their family. They are my family. Um, and I've traveled the world to see them too. Um, like just that's <laughs> another story there. But basically, at that point, I I um, I grad so. In Santa Barbara, like my, I was like, maybe I should apply again. I was like, kind of like, the, this is the last chance I'd ever be able to apply. Like, let's apply to UCLA, UC Berkeley, and like a handful of other schools, right? And then my dad said, don't do it. And I said, oh, hell no. Like, I'm like, you told me not to do something. I'm going to do it. So I paid my $90 for the application, wrote this essay in like, you know, like three hours. I think all my personal statements in three hours. And I didn't know what to write about. So I just wrote about what I was, right? This is my fourth time applying to your school. You know, and like, look at all the success I had, but you know, like this is without you imagine what it would have been if I, you know, had all the resources that UC Berkeley had, not that Santa Barbara didn't have those resources, but I think, you know, I just kind of wanted to like fluff it up a little, fluff the essay a little bit. So then, yeah. And then I applied and then for some reason I got in right to UC, UC Berkeley and I said, okay, should I stay at Santa Barbara or should I go to Cal? And I, and I said, you know, like, keep moving forward, Peter. Like you've never been up there. Like in Santa Barbara, like life was so easy. It was so great. I would go home every weekend because it was only an hour away from my house. But um, like, you know, Berkeley being up in Berkeley, I wouldn't be able to do that. So like, I really took it as a kind of a new challenge to like step up. And then um, and that's, that's, that's exactly eventually how I got in. That's also, <laughs> <laughs> um, who's going to play you in your, uh, in your movie, man. Yeah. Um, who, who, my, my movie. Who, who, I, I don't, I don't know if uh, this is well, movie worthy yet. Make it so. <laughs> well, you got, you got, you got the control to write the rest of your script. I think this is so far quite, there's a lot of lessons here. Um, cause something that I struggled with in my youth. And I know that a lot of, uh, young brothers and sisters are still is this, what do we do with, the expectations that society, community, and our families throw at us in terms of what success means in life. You know, is it getting one of a handful of school logos on your resume? Is it then followed by even more schooling or uh, now getting, you know, household brand names on your resume to validate whatever it is? Um, and we are so obsessed with perfection and we are so obsessed with linear path to achievement that if there's a slight hiccup, we are often pressured to just feel so terrible about ourselves and that we're a failure and that we're never going to amount to anything that, um, and so I'm, I'm glad you're sharing your story because detours are a part of life. Um, we can even, 
even before we debate if the metrics or the goals or the destinations that we were told that are worthy should even be worthy in the first place. That's a different conversation. But even if you do, but let's assume that that's the path you want to go on, then let's talk about what happens if you take a slight detour, right? Is that the end of the world? Um, I say no, because the answer is no. You and only you can figure out for yourself what you want to do with your life. And if it takes you 10 years, then so be it. If it takes you never, then that's okay too because you've learned a thing or two along the way that I think would make life uh, fun and educational along the way. Um, I'm learning a lot here too, Peter. Uh, this has been really, really fun and exciting. Um, tell us about the last couple years of your life since college. Um, what what path have you decided on professionally and um, what are you... And then tell us about how that love of coffee and hustling coffee to the school board meeting in your in your mom's car has has evolved into yeah, yeah. Uh, you know speaking of like just planning and wanting getting we 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 like a lot of people like me and around me struggle a lot with who we want to be in the future and just kind of speaking on that you know it gives us a lot of anxiety and 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 putting a timeline and deadline to answer that question so immediately is really it really uh, makes you make bad decisions um and you know, like it's probably in my experience better to cruise through life, kind of doing what you do right now before having to make a bad decision of being stuck in that career that you shouldn't have never been in. Um, so like, I totally get the anxiety of like, what, where, like, I know where it comes from. Like, where am I going to, where am I going to get my next meal? Right. Like that, that kind of like, you know, like generational immigrants, like background, like that's an anxiety that we, we get, yeah. I got, I get from my parents, but um, taking a step forward, like, you know, it, it's okay to kind of wait. You know, a couple of days is probably going to help a lot. Waiting a couple of days is probably going to help a lot more than um, having to make a decision when you're anxious. Um, at least that's true in my life. A couple of days. But, I mean, wait yeah, a couple of years if like, it's going to make a, a two-decade impact, right? Like, I think. Hell yeah. I mean, yeah, even that. Yeah, a couple of years at least. It took. I, I still don't like, know when I waited like three uh, It's, three you know, what, what is the average life, right? Like, let's say 90, right? And let's say your adult life, big air quotes, begins at 20 because don't, we don't control our lives in our youth, right? If you think life is over at 25 because you didn't go to the right school, you're writing off the next 65 that you have complete control over because the first five didn't go, not even wrong, but just to the script that somebody else told you that it should have been. Dude, like... I'm starting this thing at 37. There's 40, 50, 60 year olds starting new chapters of their own lives, right? Like, and I don't know if I believed fully in this linear path, like I'd, I'd still be a very miserable, whatever I would have been doing 15 years ago, right? Never quit. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Like I, I vibe with that so, so much. And it's just, I don't even ask them. I don't even like, it's just been so fundamental in my life since like, you know, since, since dropping out of high school that, you know, I don't think twice about it, but I forget like how important that is. Like, 
like you, what you said, like you, 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 you said we were writing a script, right? I met Adam Schiff, um, our congressman who kind of like sponsored my green card to accelerate that path. But I gave him a bookmark when we met and I said, this is kind of like just a reminder that I, I inserted your life at this point. We're the oldest we've ever been at this point. And like, let's just make sure like you remember, like, this is how, if we ended tonight, this is how you, you know, you, you would have have, have met me. What? Um, that's kind <laughs> that's of something crazy. That that's so cool. Tell, yeah. tell me more about that story of meeting Congressman Chef. What, what's cool? Oh, yeah. Uh, so it, it, it took six months, but I got so I, I, I just sent him an email, right? Hey, can we meet? <laughs> and then uh, I, you know, I, I just kind of like try to I need to hire you to write my hey, emails, man. Featured in this newspaper. Uh, every time you write a quote email, your life changes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's about like throwing <laughs> yourself out there, I guess, right? Just seeing the like, answer is no if you never send the email, right? Um, but yeah, so yeah, yeah, 100%. Hundred percent, yeah. That's uh, it's yeah. But so we we basically met up. Um, I I went. I didn't like we. I I didn't just basically meet up. Sorry, I went to his office and I asked his assistant, "Hey, how long do I have with him?" She said thirteen minutes. I'm like, I gotta squeeze everything I need in thirteen minutes. Okay, so I went up there. I'm like, "Hey, Congressman Schiff, I've done X, Y, and Z in my life, and it, you know my citizenship is holding me back from going to college. But I really want to go to Stanford, your alma mater. Can you write me an application? Can you write me a letter rec to Stanford?" No, no, I didn't say that. I said, can you, can you sponsor my, can you like investigate my citizenship status so I get my green card accelerated? And he said, yeah, of course, but actually, hey, can you help me like get plugged into the Asian American community? Like, do you have any events that I can maybe attend and help like you know, <laughs> show my face a little bit? I said, I knew this game. I'm like, of course I do. Uh, come to this and this and this event. And then at that third event, I said, hey, you know, as he was leaving, I said, uh, Congressman Schiff, uh, I'm trying to apply to your school. I'm uh, your alma mater, Stanford. Um, can you write me an application letter of recommendation? said sure and then he wrote me a one and i didn't get in but you know at least i still got that right so i have a letter from him um for that and it was uh so yeah that's a really quick way of thinking about it but basically my application for our family's application for a green card was already in progress um but it was just so behind and i was going to i was applying to college the next year um so i wanted to get that accelerated and i thought maybe asking him could help um and, and it did um, li literally three weeks down after, um, he's after a congressional inquiry from Congressman Schiff's office, um, our social security numbers came out, our work permit came out. And then a couple months wow. later, our green card showed up. Always ask people, always ask. You can't, 100%. you can't go out with the girl yeah, if you never ask her out. And that philosophy is true in every <laughs> part of life. Right. Um, cause oh, I always yeah, get people, topic, I yeah. always get people, you know, talking to me about podcasts and stuff and they're like, you know. I want to have a podcast. Here's, you know, I have all these great ideas. And I was like, and then they go, what if nobody listens? So, and I say, well, <laughs> nobody's listening now because you don't have a podcast. So if you never start a podcast, that's not going to change. But for you to have even the dream of having one listener, you have to record something. Right. And, and again, this might sound privileged because it probably is. And a lot of the things aren't as simple as just do it. I realize that. But within your own ability and within your, within your own capability and possibility, do what you can to try to help your situation. It costs nothing to send somebody an email, right? It, it really costs really minimally to create content out there, right? If you got a smartphone, tweet something. That's a piece of content. Um, share your ideas, share your thoughts, because it really can, um, not a singular event, maybe if you get lucky or if you time it right or if whatever, one, one singular act of um, creation can change your life, but it's the, it's the repetitiveness of that, um, that you do for years and years and years. 
Um, you definitely movie material, Peter. Um, yeah, going back to the last like couple of years of my life, but you know, I mean, just I I need to comment on this because um, Jerry, like you you do something so well, you make the best promises. Like when we started this whole like relationship with Copa and the Asian Americans. We, we said, like, you would at least get one sale, right? I mean, hell yeah, why not? Why, won't, why don't we do it? I remember when you're speaking with David Kim, you said, hey, at least one person's life will listen, like, get impacted from this. I mean, goddamn, like, let's go for that one life then, you know? So, like, I, I vibe with that, you know? I mean, if it, if it makes, even if the metric is plus one, like, it's just one, do it. But everybody, um, I, I, yeah. And look, I, I think the achievement, like, the bastardization of achievement myth is that we always compare ourselves, our present day itself, with future accomplished version of somebody else, right? So we, we look at, you know, if we look at a coffee business, we look at the Starbucks and you go, geez, how do I ever catch up to them, right? You know, like, you know what? Like one day yeah. they had one store in Seattle and they sold their first cup of coffee. And like... How do you get to your millionth cup without selling your first? You don't sell a million at once, right? So like we need to think in small micro moments of success and action that uh, eventually, uh, you know, snowball or, or blossom into something great. T tell me about Koba. How, how did you think about the idea of Koba? I obviously think it's great. And yeah, that's a sponsor statement, but I ate Peter's stuff long before we, we decided <laughs> to do this. Um, and, and my family loves it. E even, even the vegan one, uh, it's great, but tell, tell, it's cause it's, it's different. Right. Uh, I, I think we used to, I, I, I've eaten coffee yeah. before. Right. And it was when we were little in, in Korea, we had these, um, uh, was it Korea? I forget, but you know, like chocolate covered, uh, coffee beans were a thing. So like you, you, you put a different twist on that. Yeah, so like, yeah, I don't yeah. think people are. The idea of eating coffee yeah. isn't so foreign, but you, you've did it in a different, innovative yeah. way. Um, tell us about the genesis of that venture and then what you've learned uh, between that and now. Yeah. So, you know, like kind of tying in like, you know, post Berkeley story, being in Berkeley, you meet with people who are all ambitious and have great work ethic. And I think that's where our team came together. You know, like credit to me for, calling, you know, making bars in my kitchen, but credit to them for scaling it at this level. Um, and I think that's like one of the best opportunities that I picked up in Berkeley uh, and, and the support system that you come with, like all the mentors and the funding that, you know, goes through that school. Um, so, so yeah, taking, taking a step back, I think um, I was traveling through South America, uh, actually visiting one of my, my, that roommate from Santa Barbara because he was an exchange student from Ecuador visiting him and going through coffee for, uh, like plantations and, and this kind of like seeing like the root of it all, right. Where the, like the, the trees are grown and where it's harvested and processed. And I realized like there was so much time, like 10 years to grow a coffee tree. And like, because like you would think that there's a harvest season, but coffee harvest, um, coffee ripens all evenly from the same tree. So you're harvesting year round. So you tag that in and there's so much effort that goes into coffee, um, heart, like growing and, and harvesting coffee, yet we only utilize like 20% of the bean. We throw away the rest, right? And like, we're like, what are we like, what's all this effort going into? And how, like, how, why is this story not being told this 10 year process for a mature, a mature coffee tree, especially the high altitude makes the oxygen thin, making, or the carbon, like this, the air very thin. And so the, the, the plants are struggling a lot more to get the, get the nutrients they need, which actually has, has the mature, like, 
slower and therefore it makes the coffee flavors hit all the marks. So like that's why the high altitude. So like given all of these like like you know constrictions yet we don't appreciate it enough. I think I realized like how do I bring this like to market and how do I show people like how can we utilize the whole bean? And that's where it really started. We started grinding coffee beans like literally 3 days in a in a conch just the same way the coffee uh, the the cocoa beans are ground. And it, it took, and you know, you have to, for your tongue to not detect that little sediment, any sediment and make it feel like it's smooth, it needs to be about 20 microns. And we really studied this. And then like, let me just tell you, the first iteration of co- like our co- like Koba bar, which was not called Koba at the time, it was just disgusting. <laughs> like that first one was disgusting. You cannot eat that. It was a piece of wood and it was like a charcoal. I, I could not even like, uh-uh. And it took three days and it pissed me off. So it took many, many years to get to where we wanted it to be. And it, we really um, followed a lot of the, like the, we really didn't want to compromise on the quality. We really like um, tried to take as like many, we, we tested almost 300 iterations over many, many years, over like three, four years before oh. we launched on Kickstarter. And like, thankfully it was picked up on Kickstarter um, by uh, Now This, and we were featured on Now This, like almost like a quarter million uh, hits. And, and we, and we were fully funded in 24 hours, and and then we reached uh, 200% of our funding. Wow. Um, and then, like so, so yeah, we and then we launched the Cobra, our Cobra Black on Kickstarter this year, and that was also successful, met met our funding goal, and and basically that's kind of like how um, um, how we started and got the word out there. And now, like you know, we we've scaled our production. We we don't produce the uh, the bars anymore. We have a um, we have another party that's doing that. We just send them our coffee and our coffee mass and, and they, they do most of the scaling work. Um, and like, uh, I'm able to do this alongside, um, my day job, which is, um, I'm, I'm an auditor. I'm a like internal auditor right now, but I was in public accounting doing audit for a while. Um, and that's a kind of an interesting path too, because you kind of, I, I'm like, this is a very corporate setting and, and, um, you know, I, I have to ask myself, like, am I in the right place a lot? Like in the last two years, I'm hitting my, almost my second year now. I started in January 20, 2019. So I had to ask myself this question a lot. But, you know, considering how much, how accurate I am with my numbers now and how how good I am with finance, uh, like finance, with, with any financials, um, I've definitely like gleaned the very fundamentals of how to, how to set up a business to scale. Um, so that's, that's kind of why I'm still in this, uh, why I'm still auditing and I'm still like learning. I think it's, it's, it, was, it wasn't really about um, making money or like trying to, trying to be a CFO one day. It was really just to like learn as much as I can um, and really like channel a lot of this into like the mentorship that I do. I helped a company, I helped a friend start his own um, like hot sauce company. And um, I have another, another friend starting his like ramen subscription business. So I have another, I have another friend doing a wedding venue kind of business. Like it's just been like, uh, it's been trying to like help as much as help them and channel like all my skills to them as much as I can now. How do you balance corporate life and the side hustle, which do you actually want your side hustle to become your main hustle one day? Uh, Who doesn't? Of course. I would love that. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I got a piece of ice. Um, I, I, I'm taking it day by day. The balancing part is, um, it, it's it's tough. But you know, my weekends are pretty much spent on on working, like working really, really, like getting getting the most important things out of the way. Like I'm I'm putting out fires every day. Like today, I like right before this call, thirty minutes before it, um, 
I had this like this crazy fiasco where we were supposed to order 2000, but we got 10,000 pieces instead. And I'm like, how are we going to like, you know, like now like quintuple our, like our inventory, like how are we going to manage our quintuple our inventory? And this is like, I'm always putting out fires, but I think um like it, it's really like, it's been a good, has been good. Cause like you can, I, I get to work with my hands a lot more than I I'm on a computer in front of a, in front of like three screens. Right. So that's, that's in that sense, it's been good. And it's, it's been good because auditing is pretty straightforward, right? There's a lot of like investigation and like just checking numbers, but um, I mean, very broadly speaking, but uh, Koba, I get to be a little bit more creative and, and, and put a, ha- and have a lot more say in how, how things are done. So it's been a, more than like a side hustle. It's been an outlet. Um, and that's like, that's how the balance happens. Um, there was a second question. Um, yeah. side hustle being my full hustle. Of course. Yeah, of course I, I want it to be. Um, but what our, our, one of our mentors, uh, name is Rhonda Schrader from UC Berkeley. Uh, she leads an accelerator program. We just finished there. Uh, she said, don't, don't, you can't quit until you have stupid money. You know, we're not one of those tech companies where a VC will bankroll our payroll because we have so much upside potential, right? We are like a very, like, you know, very, B2C, very one at one transaction at a time type of business. So um, we don't, we're never going to get that kind of funding or we're not going to, and we're not going to like, we're not going to get, I mean, we're just not going to get that kind of like crazy venture funding. What have you learned about life and yourself? You've had your down, you've had your ups and your downs and you're continuing to uh, pivot. Um, what, What have you learned about? yourself in life the last few years taking care of my baggage has been the best way to unlearn bad behaviors i've been writing the word unlearn a lot in my day-to-day and um like my father definitely went through that path like the way my relationship with my dad has been is not the same one that he had with his father or my grandpa and um i like seeing how much he unlearned to do the things that he did with me like south america trip he was with me we were doing it with father and son thing. He never did that. He wrote a letter to his uh to his father on Facebook just after he passed, saying, "Hey, look mm. what I'm doing with my with my son. I wish I could have done that with you." There was a lot of unlearning that happened, right? And I think he took care of a lot of the baggage that maybe he might have had from a generation that prior to his um, had gone through war. Um, and same, I mean, like on a much much less dramatic um, phase, like I'm taking care of a lot of the baggage. Like, um, funny story, I my my dad would limit the number of spam I, w- I could eat. Um, because I was a chubby kid and I, he, he would count five and I would be so upset. Cans and I or do, slices? Like, at 18, 19 years old later. <laughs> slices, yo, <laughs> not cans. <laughs> yo, it was down to the slices. <laughs> I was so upset by it, but it was traumatic for like a seven-year-old kid, nine-year-old kid who would wait until his parents get home and we eat kimchi again. And then there's all this like spam. I'm going crazy. And it says five only. <laughs> oh my God. But that was a traumatic thing. I had to like go back and like realize, oh man, it wasn't like, you know, he was trying to be mean to me. It was trying to be like, whatever. It's like a funny story that my friend keeps reminding me of. Cause I used to like, I got really upset with my dad once, but took care of taking care of the baggage has been so important. Like where it hurts, I want to put my finger in a little bit deeper. You know, I think you learn so much and you free yourself from like that knot that's been just kind of tugging at your heart. Um, and I think that's like, just been like how I want to be, how I wanted to be for so long. This, you know, one thing that's great about like your podcast specifically, is like, you almost give them like a, like a platform to process <laughs> so much, 
right? I mean, like, what the heck? Like, you get, like, you get, I mean, when you start with early childhood to now, like, you get to process so much. And, you know, I mean, like, I I, I don't think I come, like, you know, I'm not going to be that guy that says I struggled through a lot and I got to this place. I'm not. Like, I don't, I don't ever want to look back and say, because everybody did. Everybody, like, you know, like, there's a lot of, everyone struggles and everyone goes through things. But I, I always want to set vision, right? Set set things forward and say, hey, like, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. And it, it's not about materialistic things. It's about being, like, doing good. And, like, you've definitely, like, you've, you're honing that, especially with these podcasts, too. Um, like, you're allowing, like, I mean, so much good. I mean, like, you're, I don't know, uh, man, just the number of people that are able to process their childhood through through listening to other people's stories. It's, 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 it's. It's like weirdly like just it's like magic, you know. <laughs> I, I get to sit here, talk to some amazing people and ask questions. I, I, we fundamentally ask for simple questions all the time. So it's a, a fun thing for me to do. I definitely learned so much. Um, and, and what I think, you know, is really good. And the reason I created it is because I saw a big gap in the marketplace to have these discussions is, just like you, man, we're always taught to look ahead. Go, 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 go. Especially as first or second generation immigrants. Depending on how you calculate, that should cover everybody. <laughs> we never, uh, within our own families, within our own communities, and certainly not in society, are ever encouraged to take a pause, even for, for a pause of 90 minutes, to think about our journey. Where the hell we came from, what experiences, shapes, and events or what experiences and events shaped our view of that and why we are doing what we are doing today and how we can all figure that out as much as we can to the best of our ability to help us figure out the next couple of steps of our own lives. We never do that, right? We're, we're now getting to a point where we as a community are more open to talking about coaching and therapy and mental health and you know expressing our own emotions without the judgment and without the fear of judgment from other people. But if you talk to a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s, we did not grow up with that shit. And, and so if hearing these stories helps you process your own, then I feel like our mission has been completed. Um, if, if you've been bold enough, if you're a former guest and you're listening to this and you've done this or you've done this in other podcasts, like, thank you, because you've inspired so many more. You know, it's, it's so exciting what we do. Like, we are now, like, taking former guests and launching shows for themselves. Like it's pretty exciting sort of the, mm. uh, the compound effect of what we're doing here. Um, I know your story is not done. I know you have, you know, uh, at least, I don't know, 60, 70, 90 uh, years of, of productivity left um, to really, you know, uh, create your own narrative, right? It's really, and as cliche as it sounds, man, it's not, it's not how you start and it's definitely not where you are today, but it is, where you end up and to use the script analogy one more time, you have the pen or you have your fingers on the keyboard. Like you get to write it however you'd like, but whatever you put on that script, be prepared mentally, physically, emotionally to work your ass off to do whatever it takes so that life happens that way. And even if it doesn't be humble and gracious enough to understand that detours are a part of the process. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, we can probably talk for hours on end, um, but we'll let people go and back go back to whatever they were doing before they listen to us. Um, and, and we'll finish the show out, Peter, in the same way that we finish all of our shows, which is uh, to ask you to help finish the letter to your Asian Americans. 
And so this is your opportunity to share any thoughts, insights, and perspectives that you want to with the Asian American community, whether, however you define that community, however you define the audience, could be a younger version of Peter, um, could be a present day version of Peter. Um, but if you could help us finish out the show and complete the letter, dear Asian Americans. Go placidly amid the noise and the haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible without surrender, be on good terms with all people. Speak your truth quietly and clearly and listen to others, even to the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Uh, this is kind of like the intro to a, to a poem that is called Desiderata that one of my teachers, high school teachers gave me before uh, I, I, I dropped out. And I think this um, is something that I want, like, just to, I mean, the, the poem goes on, but I think this, these two first stanzas were, were the most impactful in, in my last uh, couple of years. That's awesome, man. Thank you. We're going to put all the ways that you can find Peter on the internet uh, in the show notes. By now, you should know that you can go to Koba Coffee, Koba.coffee and, and check it out. And, you know, the, one of the things that I wanted to do, I don't know if I'll be able to fully keep my commitment when we started the Asian Americans and then subsequently just like media, is to really live our mission and to help other Asian American entrepreneurs through our platform and through our medium, help their businesses grow. And so, of course, at least all of our guests are Asian American, self-identified Asian American, and we tell Asian American stories. Everybody in our team identifies Asian American, meaning that every dollar that we've spent on the production and the marketing and the building of this platform has stayed within the community. To the best of our ability, when we work with vendors, and, and other people where the money goes out, we wanted to continue to stay within the community. And for us to work with Peter on our very first partnership is continuing that mission because we are also encouraging our listeners and our community to go support Peter's business and other businesses because if we don't help each other first, we can't really expect other people to do the same, right? So, you know, sure. If McDonald's comes calling one day and says, here, Jerry, here's a bucket of money, we probably won't say no, but <laughs> uh, it's just more fun when we can, you know, help each other out, you know, small or big business. And so it's very meaningful, Peter, uh, to have you on the show. It's been a lot of fun to getting to know you. Keep up your good work. It's hard. I know it's hard. And if you're listening, please do check out Peter, support his businesses, connect with him if you want to learn more. And I'm sure he'll be able to, he should be, I'm sure he'll be happy to share with you his insights and whatnot. So Peter, thanks again. Any, any final thoughts before we sign off? Yeah. I mean, just like really champ, like getting that out there. If people want to help, if anyone, if anyone wants any help with kickstarting a business or especially in the food CPG space, I've gone through it and done that, made the mistakes already. So you don't have to repeat it. So reach out. I mean, you can, as soon as you uh, send me a message on our website, koba.coffee, uh, there's no.com, it's just .coffee. It'll go straight to my personal email, so I'll also see it. So I, I'm, I'm looking at it every couple every couple minutes, like 30 minutes at a time. So I'm always seeing, monitoring that. Um, and just thank you, thank you to your audience, thank you for listening to my story and letting me like like put it on a platform. Thank you. Keep 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 roasting. Keep keep stamping. Keep eating keep coffee. Chomping away at your coffee. <laughs> really, really, really inspired by your story, Peter. And hope that many of our listeners have done the same. Talk to you soon, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Really inspired by Peter's story of perseverance, of grit, of ingenuity. And we are really excited to share so much with him. 
and want to thank him again for his team and his team uh, for sponsoring the show and for being great partners. So again, if you want to check out his product, you can go to Koba.coffee. Use the code podcast to make sure that you are getting your discount. Follow us on social media wherever you can. We are at Dear Asian Americans on Instagram, on Facebook, and we are at Dear Asian Am on Twitter. And you can always hit us up on the Instagram DM box or wherever you can. If email is easier for you, hello at theeurasianamericans.com will land you in my inbox. And also join us in our Facebook group at the Dear Asian Americans community, where you, along with other fellow listeners, guests, and me, can talk about whatever you'd like that affects the show or the community. Uh, thanks again so much. And before we go, want to highlight two amazing things that happened in our community over the last week. Obviously, big congratulations to Kamala Harris becoming not just the first woman, but the first Asian American woman uh, to hold the position of vice president in the United States. And to Kim Eng, who is now the general manager of the Miami Marlins, who becomes the very first woman and the first East Asian uh, person to hold that position. So it's a big, big deal in the community and in the world. So uh, props to you, ladies. And um, maybe we'll have you on the show one day. Thanks again for tuning in to the Asian Americans. Grateful from the bottom of my heart. Stay safe, be well, and hope to see you next week. Thanks so much.